Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Awakening by Willis Conover Jr. Uh, first published in Weird Tales, May 1940. Uh, this isn't his only contribution to Weird Tales, um, but the others are letters. Um, this guy, uh, you may or may not have heard of him, depending on how much uh, Lovecraft you read, but he wrote a biography of Lovecraft uh, in 1975 called uh, Lovecraft at Last, The Master of Horror in His Own Words. Uh, he was a correspondent of Lovecraft's, and so he put together a, a biography based on what Lovecraft said to him in letters about his life um i have not read that yet but i'm looking forward to it uh this guy willis conover is a prolific letter writer um i have one of them here which i would like to read uh very brief good um this is from uh an issue of weird tales uh let me just bring it up uh it's um or it's from 1936, and it's about an upcoming. Uh, it's August. Uh, so, sorry, it's Letters to Weird Tales, August 1939, and it's from an up. It's about an upcoming uh, Poe collection, or Poe issue of Weird Tales. Uh, Willis Conover Jr. writes from Salisbury, Maryland. Quote. I was very pleased to note your announcement of the forthcoming Finlay picturization of Poe's Raven on the cover. I am sure Virgil's painting will be a memorable one. This is of particular interest to me because we have chosen here at State Teachers College as this year's as this year's major production, Plumes in the Dust, Sophie Treadwell's story of the tragic life of Edgar Allan Poe. So, um... Long story short about Willis Conover, um, and this is just my end of the story, I think you know something about him too, uh, is that he was an enthusiastic Weird Tales reader, an enthusiastic uh, uh, correspondent, and didn't produce a lot of fiction or Weird uh, Tales poems. There's two poems by him, and I think one story, um, and then we've got the biography but he did write tons of letters to many magazines. Um, I kind I of think, I, see myself I, I in a guy like this. He's a, he's a student at, at State Teachers College at this point. Mm-hmm. Right, not a faculty member. Right. Just, yeah. He's a young man. Definitely. Yeah, um, so you were saying, sorry, Jess. Oh, no, I'm just saying I, I kind of see myself uh, as, a, as a guy like him. I'm an appreciator rather than a producer of massive quantities of fiction sort of thing. Um, and I would say about this poem, um, it's something I appreciate because I think I could do it. <laughs> it's not beyond my skill, and yet um, I like it, and so I'm like that. Do you? I think you uh, know about his uh, post, uh, post-Weird Tales and teaching career, do you? Yeah, I don't think that he, I didn't know that he actually was a teacher. Um, I think he spent most of his life actually, and this is what he's he's gone down in history for as a, a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was famous for his interest in jazz, and in fact, for years and years, 
during the Cold War, he had a nightly jazz broadcast on the Voice of America. Um, and I know people my age, um, you know, I was born in 46. Um, as jazz was beginning to to wane in New York, I still was able to go to the the, the Vanguard and the Village Gate and so on um, to see it in the in the fifties and sixties. Um, but as jazz was beginning to wane, as it has throughout the world, I remember knowing that there was great love for it beyond the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, Willis Conover is credited for having kept that passion for American jazz alive with nightly broadcasts of jazz and his own commentaries um, for decades. Um, it's, it's an interesting uh, piece of, uh, of patriotism on his part. And it's also interesting to note that um, because jazz began as uh, black American music and has always had an enormous fraction of its practitioners be black. When he came back to the United States, he ran jazz clubs in Washington, D.C., and he insisted that both black and white patrons could attend. Mm -hmm. So he is credited with having desegregated Washington, D.C. Interesting, Mm -hmm. I thought. Interesting. So so he's tried to keep things alive And the poem we're talking about today is called Awakening. Um, He tried to awaken the world to things that he considered good and valuable. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, this poem represents a a youthful contrast, published, by the way, as you said, 1940, three years after the death of his great correspondent, H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, I, I read this because I wanted a nice poem for students to teach them all the poetic devices and i didn't i didn't think that much of it when i i went through it and then i was like no i do think much of it and um and uh i i was pointing out to you eric before we started recording that this is going to be the fourth or maybe the fifth uh story or poem with awakening in the title for (laughs) that we've covered on the podcast which is a little unusual, and I was thinking um, why it is even a called awakening. Um, but maybe we'll discuss a little bit of that after you read it to us for the first time. Sounds good. Awakening. Long hours I lay beneath a starless sea where swam no scaly maid to test her art and cool my fevered lips against her heart, and in the murky ligure, no degree of truth was there to mar the fantasy. Now through the deeps a mystic counterpart of Hermes entered strangely to impart the maddening picture of reality. With magic touch he swept aside the veil, then vanished with the nightmare's scattered dust, but consciousness brought with it quick disgust, for there a coffin lay above the pale. I looked within and knew all hope had flown, those sightless eyes, that bloated face, my own. (laughs) So I summarized this um, as fun poem about a guy who wants a mermaid to kiss, stays underwater for hours, 
wakes up to find he is a ghost, <laughs> which is, I think, essentially what the plot is. It's got a twist ending, right? But that is not the whole story on this little tiny poem. Um, I, I, I started thinking about why I like it so much, and I think uh, it's a, a lot to do with really interesting word choice and uh, some ambiguity here and there. So, uh, let's go sentence by sentence, if you don't mind. I, I see the first sentence is ending on, uh, what, the fifth line? I'll just read that. Long hours I lay beneath a starless sea, where swam no scaly maid to test her art, and cool my fevered lips against her heart. And in the murky liquor, no degree of truth was there to mar the fantasy so what's awesome about this is he's he's like ah I'm gonna get to kiss a mermaid There's of course there is no mermaid down here with me <laughs> but that's okay because it's so dark down here um, I can't be disabused of the idea that I'm gonna get to kiss a mermaid uh, wow I don't read it that way at all Jesse. that's one way of reading it but uh, yeah it tell is. me how you oh, see I don't it. disagree that it's one oh absolutely it's a way to read it um, well I've read it many times as you have so I may be reading it retrospectively having mm-hmm. seen my way through it when he says where swam no scaly made to test her art mm-hmm. I'm thinking of her as being more like a siren oh definitely one of those right so he is not, I think, necessarily wanting her, but he is, in fact, not finding her. Mm-hmm. And she was not there when it says, cool my fevered lips against her heart. Mm-hmm. That I, I, picture, I picture him picturing something that didn't happen, but yes. what it would have been would have been her holding him to her heart. And that would have been how she had trapped him and and gotten him to drown. Yes. Which, of course, he is drowned by the end of the poem. So um, no scaly maid is testing her art. I see this as him seeing a fantasy world absent. Yes. And it's also a reality world absent. Yes. Because it's a starless sea. Well, of course... The sea is starless unless you're looking at reflection back up of the sea. But if you're underwater, then he says he lay beneath it. Mm-hmm. What that means is that he couldn't see it. And we understand why at the end. But I think he can't see it because he wants – his fantasy is not to have to be in either fantasy or reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's a different way of reading this, that, mm-hmm. that this murky liquor – Right. So good. It has not intoxicated him, in fact, um, in a way that would allow him clarity. It's a liquor that has made things murky so that no degree of truth was there to mar the fantasy. And his fantasy is the fantasy that there is no fantasy. Mm. So reality would, in fact, mar the truth of the fantasy that there (laughs) is no fantasy. He He is striving, it seems to me. To be utterly disembodied, and I'm using that mm-hmm. word um, intentionally, because if you're beneath a starless sea, you are, in a way, projecting your consciousness into the universe and simultaneously entirely 
immersed in the ocean. And phenomenologically, we know that the ocean represents the place for the dissolution of the self. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sea change that's referred to in The Tempest, in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Mm-hmm. So, um, at least I see his fantasy as being one that wants to put aside both the mythic and the mystic, the fantastic and the realistic, and get beyond women, beyond females. He's trying for that. Mm-hmm. But then something else happens. And and so that's the second reading. So now continue with your reading and, and we'll see what happens as we go further through the poem. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think I think I what convinced me uh, I need to send this to you was um, the fevered lips, the murky liquor instead of the murky liquid, right? It just adds mm. to the story. Uh, but then the final clincher on this sentence is, of truth there was to mar the fantasy. And mar is uh, also a prefix for ocean, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, right? Uh, um, actually, it's a prefix for sea, yeah. F-E-A, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I get your point. Absolutely. Uh, second sentence reads, Now through the deeps, a mystic counterpart of Hermes entered strangely to impart the maddening picture of reality. And uh, I was like, Hermes? Who's the counterpart of Hermes? Uh, So it took me a bit. And then I was like, wait, he's the, he's like protector of thieves. He's, he's like the messenger of the gods. He goes between different levels. But uh, then I remembered that he's also a psychopomp, a.k.a. uh, a creature or being that takes one from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Um, That that didn't occur to me the first time I read it, but it certainly makes sense later on. If I recall correctly, he's also Cersei's uncle. Oh, interesting. I may be be wrong here. In... uh, in Madeline Miller's Circe, Hermes is the one who keeps coming to her. Um, I remember that uh, Hermes shows up on the aisle uh, right before uh, Odysseus goes in to check on his his guys. Um, says, hey, what you need to do is uh, sneak up right. on her and put a knife to her throat and demand it. Uh, so he knows yeah. her well, clearly, even if... Uh, Indeed. <laughs> Hermes is Odysseus's great grandfather. Oh, really? Wow! And and, and uh, everybody's related, I guess, back then. Exactly, and uh, and Odysseus is the one who has to resist the sirens. He gets, you know, mm-hmm. uh, strapped, uh, roped to the mast. Um, Hermes is very interesting in terms of coming to understand things when we talk about biblical interpretation. When we try to unlock the meanings that are inside the text that we need penetrating intelligence to reveal to us because the mere words themselves are inadequate. It's our intelligence that makes that come out. What we say is that we are trying to unpack a hermetic text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the word Hermes is the root of that hermetic text. It's the real message of the gods that's somehow locked away. When you say something is hermetically sealed, that's what it comes from, that the messages of the gods require extra intelligence to understand them, which is what we're trying to understand here. But he comes from some other place because Hermes entered, this uh, counterpart of Hermes entered strangely. Mm. 
and strangely. It's funny. Strange that means foreign. You mentioned uh, somehow, because one of the words I was uh, teaching my students in here is a is a really interesting word, and I I really like to use it, and that's impart. Of Hermes mm. entered strangely to impart. So impart is like give, right? But it's give somehow rather than, you know, like hand to. I imparted knowledge. And this is actually, uh, I think, associated with the title of this poem and how this poem could be thought of as how it was created, like what it all means. Um, I think that this is a dream <laughs> in the sense that um, in dreams, you sometimes will know things without knowing how you know them. Um, this knowledge is imparted to you, but it is not something you read necessarily, or you recognize somebody, but it's not because you recognize them. It's just something you have had imparted to you. And so when he says at the beginning, long hours I lay beneath a starless sea, we know that this is impossible unless he's a deep sea diver for some reason laying at the bottom of the ocean, because we don't do that. Um, (laughs) Uh, he has to be dead, or I think even more rightly that this is uh, thought of thinkable as a dream that has been written down. Um, now, through the deeps, a mystic counterpart of Hermes entered strangely to impart the maddening picture of reality. Really interesting. Third sentence With magic touch, he swept aside the veil then vanished with the nightmare-scattered dust. But consciousness brought with it quick disgust, for there a coffin lay above the pale. I'm still not a million percent uh, clear on what I'm looking at here. Above the pale. I am picturing a pall. What are you picturing? Well, the, what, I'm, what I'm picturing is him looking... At the coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, now his disembodied viewpoint is above the surface of the ocean looking down mm. and seeing him. Um, but the coffin lay above the pale. Why does he put it that way? Because he simultaneously sees it as above the surface of the ocean. The phrase that comes to mind here that we, I think, are all familiar with is beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. The word pale is uh, etymologically related to palisades. It's a stake. It's a boundary. And the pale of, uh, of settlement was where Jews were required to stay in imperial Russia. If something is beyond the pale... It means it's outside of the boundaries. It's something which is in a disallowed place. So the Jews weren't allowed beyond the pale, but if something were beyond the pale, it's something that is just outre, uh, which is cognate. And again, it's you know, outre, outside. Mm-hmm. So this coffin lay above the pale. I think it means it's beyond the pale because what this thinker wants is, at least it seems to me, a world in which he can, in fact, be disembodied. He wants neither reality nor nightmare. So if the coffin is above the pale, it hasn't gone beyond the pale, think horizontal. It's gone somehow vertical, which is how it began. He began beneath a starless sea, mm-hmm. looking upward. And when I see that, you know, why, is, why is reality maddening? 
because he doesn't want there to be reality, mm-hmm. right? But he also doesn't want there to be fantasy. So the magic touch swept aside the veil. It forced him to realize that there was such a thing as reality. That's why it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Nightmares scattered dust. Is The nightmare is reality. Mm-hmm. So the, the consciousness brought with it quick disgust. And that word, which you've read to us already, it stopped me, Jesse, because I thought to myself, especially having finished the poem and knowing that he's going to see himself, if I saw my own body suddenly, (laughs) I might feel horror. I might feel terror. I might feel horrible loss. Disgust? Mm. And I thought to myself, why is disgust? Why is this consciousness? What is he conscious of? that it makes him disgusted. And it seems to me that what he had been striving for was a world in which he was literally disembodied. I keep returning to that word Mm -hmm. because the last couplet is one in which he is forced to recognize that even dead, he is embodied. Mm. And recognizing that this is the nature of existence, that there is no getting away from the body. In fantasy, in myth, in reality, there is ultimately no getting away from reality. That's what makes him disgusted. This is bodily disgust. He wants to be pure thought, and he would like to be pure thought with nothing happening. He wants to lay for hours beneath a starless sea. He doesn't want a woman. He doesn't want a liquor. Mm. He wants nothing. But even reduced to seeing and feeling nothing, it's still a body, and he hates it. Mm. He's awakening into something terrible, seems to me. Yeah, um, those last two lines. I looked within. I love that he's looking within the coffee, but he's also, uh, not the coffee, the coffin, looking within the coffin. And then he's also looking within himself, right? I looked within, getting insight, imparting somehow, and knew all hope had flown. Those sightless eyes, that bloated face, my own. So it's the twist ending, the surprise. But I love, I love the symmetry in here. In the first line, it reads, long hours I lay beneath a starless sea. So the second to last word of the first line is starless. And on the last line, those sightless eyes that bloated face my own. The second word is sightless. We get starless and sightless. And in the middle mm. of the poem, uh, we get, of truth there was to mar the fantasy. And then, a couple lines down... The maddening picture of reality. Fantasy, Mm -hmm. reality, starless, sightless. Looking at what's going on at the beginning of the poem, we say, well, it's a starless sea because the water's so murky. Why is the water so murky? Well, because he has no eyes. (laughs) 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 Really hard to see down here. Um, He's feeling like it'd be great for uh, a mermaid to be here um, to practice her art, which is a great line, uh, or a scaly maid, I guess. Um, right. Uh, 
And um, and then uh, in reading it a final time before I uh, did this podcast with you, Eric, I realized um, there's actually quite a few really cool things with temperature in here. Did you notice mm, that? I did, but please speak. Well, listen to this. Long hours I lay beneath a starless sea where swam no scaly maid to test her art. Well, you're getting pretty cold if you're at the bottom of the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. And cool my fevered lips. So we've got cooling and hot lips mm-hmm. against her heart. Well, she's a, she's a scaly maid. I assume she's not hot-blooded. Uh, and in the murky liquor, no degree. Isn't that fun? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> It is nice. There's, there's like a kind of like he, he really put this together. You know, it wasn't dashed off, and it seems oh, no. like it's, it's a silly little, um, just a reveal of oh, I'm dead. I mean, I've written a lot of poems like this. You know, like I suddenly realized I was a corpse on the side of the road. I was looking at my own body. Oh my god! Right, but he did it in a very elegant and fun way and it's easy to overlook a poem like this i think i think i think that is it is easy it looks like it's just a trick look it's me but i don't think that at all i in that last couplet i looked within that is within the pail or within the coffin or within myself yep excuse me i looked within and knew all hope had flown and suddenly with that word hope we have to ask what has been going on here Mm -hmm. and i think what we can understand retroactively is that the speaker had in fact hoped for that disembodied state and now he could not get it because reality had intruded because a mystic counterpart of Hermes mm-hmm. had cast aside the veil. The veil that had allowed him not to see the stars, had not to seen his, see his body, had not to see reality. What he wants is disembodiment. That, by the way, is a key to knowledge. This is exactly the crucial viewpoint in Olaf Stapledon, in Last and First Men and Star Maker, which, by the way, um, was 1937. Mm. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Conover knew that because it was a bestseller at the time. And that entire epic story that goes through billions and billions of years of humanity and and other versions of humanity, um, it's told from the by a disembodied viewpoint. That's what the narrator is called. And I think in Awakening by Conover, the hope is to be able to be a disembodied viewpoint, to to not have to feel fever, to not have to feel anything. He, he wants no degree. He Well, he did until reality intruded and he saw that the only way he could have nothing was to be a corpse i'm talking about i'm talking about conover he got his wish he is no longer with us but his thoughts remain on this page that we're reading well said well said so um 
I, I would put this together with uh, with his love of jazz. Um, it seems to me that uh, that exactly what we see in jazz, or I should say, here in jazz, um, is is a tossing back and forth. You know, you have an idea, and it someone else picks it up and turns it into another idea, and then it comes back. There's a kind of inherent collaboration, a crossing between viewpoints, which collectively creates a certain sense of form. Yep. And what we have here is a perfect sonnet, right? It's A, B, B, A, mm-hmm. A, B, you know, C, D, D, C. Um, and uh, then the the final couplet. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's a perfect sonnet. It looks like it is a single world. But in fact, we keep going back and forth between the positive and the negative, a starless sea, no scaly made, right? But mm-hmm. then the veil is there, but ripped away. We go back and forth between the positive and the negative and between the fantastic and the real. But ultimately, there's no getting away from the real because it's told in words. A disembodied consciousness that we can't hear isn't a poem at all. So there is an effort on the part of the speaker to to become disembodied, but the longer he stays there, the harder it is for him to maintain that disembodiment. And even if he were to do it forever, he would eventually be confronted by his own mortality. That is, no matter how much you want to escape, no matter how much you want to settle things, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.